Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you're very welcome to The Tonight Show. As the UN declares that more than 5 million Ukrainians have fled the war, the Irish government looks to emergency accommodation to deal with the demand. We are under real pressure and, and we're being upfront about that and, and that's one of the reasons why the Mill Street Centre is going to be used for the first time. It's the beginning of the end for Ulster Bank and KBC as customers are told to put their money elsewhere. And later, expecting to lose more than 2 million subscribers in the next three months, Netflix shares are taking a tumble. What went wrong for the streaming giant? Or is it a case of too many choices and too little time? Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions on hashtag tonight's VMTV. First tonight, Gardaí have been carrying out a search of a house in County Cavan today as part of an investigation into alleged criminal activity in the region. It has been revealed to be the home of businessman Sean Quinn. Earlier I spoke to crime and courts correspondent for Virgin Media News, Sarah O'Connor, for the latest on the story. Well, what we know, Kira, is that Gardaí from the Cavan Monaghan Division searched the home of former billionaire Sean Quinn in Ballyconnell in County Cavan. Today they were there for a number of hours. They obtained the search warrant from the district court. They executed it today and they, it's understood, seized a number of items. And what Gardaí are saying is that a search took place, that it is connected to an ongoing investigation into alleged criminal activity in Cavan and in the wide, uh, wider border region. And Sean Quinn himself has spoken to BBC uh, Northern Ireland. He's released a statement. What exactly has he said? You know, he told the BBC following the search, uh, BBC Northern Ireland today, that he didn't know why the Gardaí had come to his house today. Uh, he also told them uh, that Gardaí said it was in relation to coercion, to deception, to harassment, stuff like that. He also said, so I asked them, who was I harassing? This, that and the other, they said, look, we can't tell you that. We just have to do our investigation, but that's what we're here for. He also told the BBC that the Gardaí never mentioned anything about criminality unless harassment is criminality he said they never mentioned anything like that at all and he told the BBC that they took his phone his diary and a big box of stuff and went off with it and Sean Quinn's uh, solicitor has also been speaking what has he said yeah, Sean Quinn's solicitor, Chris McGettigan, has released a statement to the media. He has said that there's been no formal explanation in relation to why the search took place, that it came as a bolt out of the blue. He's also said it's very disconcerting uh, not to have details of the allegations that are made against you, and it's a fundamental principle in law that someone should know what allegations are being made against them. And as I said, Gardaí have said this is uh, the search was in connection with an ongoing investigation. They also said that no arrests have been made. Well, thank you, Sarah. We'll leave it there for now.
That was Sarah O'Connor of Virgin Media News on that house search by Gardaí in Cavan earlier today. Well, today also sees the use of the first large-scale emergency and temporary accommodation to house those fleeing the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The Mill Street Arena in County Cork is expected to welcome 70 refugees tonight and can be used to house approximately 300 people. Earlier, Virgin Media News correspondent Richard Chambers spoke to the Minister with responsibility in this area, Roderick O'Gorman, about the decision to avail of emergency accommodation. We are under real pressure and, and we're being upfront about that and, and that's one of the reasons why the Mill Street Centre is going to be used for the first time. Uh, in Mill Street we've uh, accommodation for uh, around 300 individuals. They have uh, kind of enclosed pr uh, private uh, living accommodation there. There'll be obviously shared uh, leisure facilities. Uh, obviously full meals will be provided there but that's been stood up for the first time this evening. Well, in studio to discuss this is Minister of State in the Department of Children, Equality and Disability, <coughs> Anne Rabbit, journalist and author, Valerie Cox, News Talk presenter, Kieran Cuddihy, and political correspondent for the Irish Examiner, Aoife Moore. You're all very welcome to the programme. Aoife, I want to start with you because there was a Cabinet meeting this evening and the issue of housing Ukrainian refugees, top of the agenda. What uh, did we learn? Yeah, I think it's very much uh, the same. Um, what we saw in the cabinet memo this evening was there are concerns around accommodation. Now we knew, you know, that very shortly we were going to run out of accommodation. We heard that Mill Street um, opened tonight. They expect Mill Street to be completely overrun by the weekend. Um, it is coming on thick and fast. We're now averaging around 400 arrivals per day. Now that has decreased a lot from what we were seeing before. We heard um, that over a thousand people who had initially um, pledged to take in Ukrainian refugees have now rescinded that offer. Now we don't know what those reasons could be. Maybe they weren't, um, it wasn't appropriate anymore or they find people in a different way. Um, but we know accommodation is going to be the big thing. We're also, uh, we're hearing about pressures on primary schools, on teachers, you know, lack of um, translators. And there's also concerns now about the fiscal and the public expenditure because we know obviously with this very unexpected influx of people fleeing um, Putin's war in Ukraine, they're given PPS numbers but there's going to be issues around tax and if the cost of living and the price of we know petrol and diesel and everything continues to go up with um, the sanctions on Russia, this could create more problems from us down the road. So. I feel like every week people are saying it is movable, you know the government is kind of working on the hop here but there's meetings ongoing, they haven't been put off, there's been no, uh, at no point has anyone said this has to stop but it is very movable and things are changing all the time. Um, the demand on state services though is growing all the time isn't it because I suppose the initial trench of people who came perhaps could rely on friends and family, mm -hmm. those arriving now and in the next couple of weeks and months uh, will be able to do that less so. Yeah, so we know that um, 24, over 24,000 people have arrived, 16,000 of those need accommodation. So it's a very small number that have found their own accommodation, maybe they had a family here or whatever. And we've also heard from the Housing Minister, Darrell O'Brien, he said, you know, this influx of people isn't going to affect housing for all. You know, that our plans to build all the houses that we know that we need isn't going to be affected. But the other issue is, with these sanctions, we know that the price of materials, everything else is going to go up as well. I wish I had better news, 
but it does all just seem there's a lot of pressure on the system now and, and we hear Mill Street is going to be used what exactly is Mill Street like what what does that accommodation look like for these people so what we have heard is that it's um, separate beds when they get there they will get a hot meal there's um, restrooms places to wash and shower it's segregated beds they have access to Ukrainian TV that kind of thing. However, this is very much a stopgap. You know, Helen McEntee, the Justice Minister, was out today and she said they do not want people in this for the long term. It's just for a couple of days and then hopefully they can move out to whether it's rented accommodation or, or hotels or whatever else. Um, interesting, Kieran, though, because we're only at 25,000 mm. uh, Ukrainian refugees. We've been told we can take up to 200,000. That's the quota, apparently. Um, and already we're having to use this emergency accommodation. Yeah, and, and look, I think... A lot of people, and myself included, would cut the government a huge degree of slack in terms of having to use the likes of Mill Street. You know, maybe the optics aren't great. You know, people kind of being housed in, you know, what is an arena used for show jumping at different times of the year. Uh, but, but, you know, plans had to be made on the hop and there's a case of any port in a storm. And I, and I think you can get a sense of that as well from, like, opposition reaction. There are not people out kind of banging the benches, kind of demanding that everybody, you know, be housed overnight. There's a realisation that it's difficult. But the difficulty is going to be compounded the longer this lasts. You know, like Eve is right about that. And we only, and have, we only have one-eighth of the overall figure that was suggested might come here, and already this is where we find ourselves. And I appreciate Daryl O'Brien says it's not going to affect housing for all, but if people are only going to stay in places like Mill Street before being moved out into rental accommodation, that has to... Like, you don't need to be an economist to realise that has an impact on the rental market, which must have an impact on housing for all. And also it's worth pointing out that we've heard from the Fulcher Ireland Chief Paul Kelly last week saying, look, hotel accommodation, short term or long term, is not suitable for Ukrainian refugees. And actually, it's not a good business model for our um, sector either. Yeah, just in my, actually, my taxi on the way out here, my taxi man told me that he had Easter holidays booked to go away to County Clare for over Easter. And the hotel had phoned him and said, listen, I'm sorry that we can't take you, but the hotel has been, has been used. The government have asked us we're going to be using it for Ukrainians. We had too many people living in hotels before the invasion of Ukraine. We know that people shouldn't be living in hotels full stop, but also we're coming into summer. Uh, you know, we're, it's the first summer after COVID. We want the hospitality and tourism sector to be back where it was, and there seems to be no hotels left either. Uh, Valerie, are you confident that this will be a short term measure for the Ukrainian refugees coming in? There's no way. I mean, if you add the figures, it just doesn't work. I mean, I do agree with Kieran though, that you have to cut the government a little bit of slack on this because they couldn't be expected to provide proper housing overnight. I mean, that's a fact, these numbers coming in. And in fact, in other countries, I mean, for example, I've seen it in Greece, where the refugees spent months and months actually in the UNHCR tents, you know, the big white tents, and the families lived in them, and sadly, some of them are still living there. But I think the big problem here is that the actual response is mostly coming from voluntary groups, not from the government. I mean, they're putting things in place, all right, but that is very slow, and I'm still cutting them some slack on that. Um, picking up on all of those points, uh, Anne Rabbit, we also heard the Irish Refugee Council saying today, look, at the response hasn't been coordinated enough. There are too many agencies and too many government departments dealing with this, and actually you need one individual or one body to oversee this, and if you don't, it's not going to be coordinated. Would you agree with that assessment? Well, let me peel it back a little bit, okay? So I, I, I've been in government and I've been in the Department of Health and in the Department of Equality with Minister O'Gorman 
to be very, very fair, all government departments are working really, really hard mm. at this moment in time. And there is no doubt over this weekend, you found it hard to breathe your way through to the next phase. So I'm not surprised where we are this evening because there's no point at the weekend in Galway in the Calisanchez College trying to find accommodation for 59 um, Ukrainians where they were going to go to next. We thought we might have it on Sunday, we might have had it on Monday. They only went this evening at five o'clock and they're gone to Killarney. So having the reception centre moving it on, then to having our rest centres and we saw the time extending and extending and extending all of the time. But saying that, saying that, we are providing safety and shelter. That, that was our first ask, and we are doing that. And we're doing it really, really well. Um, the coordination... Well, do you think providing multi accommodation, dormitory-style accommodation for women and children is doing it really, really well? No, it's not. And it shouldn't be long-term. It is absolutely not. But at the same time, there was 24,000 properties pledged. Mm. Out of the 24,000 properties pledged, when they went back over them again, 50% of them is only what's available. And of that 50%, only 3,271 of them are actually standalone vacant units. Mm. And of that, 9,000 of them are shared accommodation. And I don't believe we should be putting anybody into shared accommodation without having proper vetting done first. So the process is probably going to take that little bit longer, but I'd like to get it right when we're doing it. So of the 3,200, 859 of them are ready to be stood up with people to go directly into those standalone properties. Is that part of the problem, though, is that you know, the government relied on these pledges and perhaps weren't clear enough with people who were putting those pledges forward you know, about what was required of them, about the cost, about the level of responsibility they have. And as people discovered that or perhaps got scared about it, they withdrew those pledges. And I, perhaps the momentum around the pledges has been lost a little. No, I'd say there's a few factors in it, to be quite honest with you. One is the cost of living. There's no denying that. The cost of having the electricity and the heating on, mm. that's, that's a factor who will pay for that. That's a question that, that a lot of people... been very vague? But people have pledged. And the other side of it as well is... Well, they've pledged, but the judge used to just point out a couple of minutes ago, 50% of those pledges have been withdrawn or disappeared. Yeah, they have, for, for various reasons. I think people didn't realise at the beginning the war could be going on for as long as it's going on. They would hope it was more of a short term. Now, the longer it is going on, the war, they also see the devastation as to how long is it going to rebuild back up the Ukraine. So should and the government have perhaps offered money from the outset to people who'd pledged their accommodation? I don't think so. I think, to be quite honest with you, I think the government, along with everybody else, along with the NGOs, along with the voluntary sector, along with our various people working in the, the, the county councils, we're breeding our way through this. It's an evolving feast on a daily, daily basis. And I do think they're doing their best to respond to it. And yes, Mill Street is stepping up, but it's not a full-term solution by any manner or means. But nobody's quite sure what the next step is. I, I think the next step I'm after clearly saying is that, that the thousand properties need to be opened and accessed immediately. The other 2,271 need to be got, got ready straight away. And perhaps we need to work also with our religious orders. There's a lot of properties there. I've seen it worked really successful okay. in Loch Ray and in Gort in the last two weeks, where we've housed successfully 100 people with access to their own okay. cooking and everything. What's, what's the message for people as well who have, uh, who have taken in refugees, either through official channels <laughs> or maybe they registered through official channels and then they ended up connecting through Facebook. We know lots of people have done that and maybe that's the reason. I know Eva went through the figures, people kind of, uh, you know, reneging on maybe earlier pledges. It might be the case that they had found someone. But the expectation they had 
was that they were probably housing someone for a few weeks because that was the experience yeah. with Syrian refugees, people who stood up to the plate and offered accommodation. Do you think so, Kieran? Do you not think they made it quite clear it would be, you know, six months to a year from no, the outset? I, no, I, I think the expectation from some was that this would take a few weeks and that the, then some, they, they would be found somewhere to live. I think a lot of people now are getting nervous about the possibility that there's such pressure on the system that those who are in shared accommodation, in an accommodation with a family, they're going to be left last. At Ethan. least you've got a roof over your head. Just to Kieran's point, I actually spoke to a cabinet minister after cabinet way back when this invasion started and all the pledges were coming in and he said that the government weren't planning on the Russian invasion going on that long. So that was obviously the message that was going out there and I do think now with this, the rise in the cost of living, I think people need to know where they stand when it comes to paying families, yeah. you know, funding people. People aren't doing this because they want money. I doubt anyone thinks they're going to make a great profit out of taking in Ukrainian refugees but I think people would like a bit more concrete evidence if I take in a young woman and her child, who's going to help me pay the bills for these for these people? I mean, because even the cost of childcare, if that even if she has a PPS number to go out and work, but she has a young child, all this has to be taken into consideration. I mean, the government is putting huge money into getting all this accommodation, and I don't see why that cohort of it was 22,000 should be paying for that themselves and supporting that, and especially when they don't know what the end is or when the end. I think what in the, the midst of a cost of living crisis. We said, look, do this for three months and you will get paid expenses. I don't really see why these people should be doing it for nothing. And is the government going to look at that, do you think? I think so. I think Minister McEntee made that clear a number of weeks ago back. Um, I think everything is on the table. There's nothing off the table. I think we're very open to all of that. We, we want to ensure that we can actually, and I go back to it again, actually make sure that the, the, the properties that are pledged are accessed and what other means that we need to access properties, we, we have to do that as well. All right, um, we're going to leave that topic there for now. But in other news tonight, boxing and MMA management company MTK Global has announced that it is ceasing operations a week after the United States Treasury Department placed a $5 million bounty on the head of its co-founder, Daniel Kinnahan. For more on this, I spoke a little earlier to chief sports writer for the Irish Daily Star, Kieran Cunningham, and asked him to explain what MTK Global is and its connection to Daniel Kinnahan. Well, MTK Global was, it was initially called MGM and it was set up in Marbella, Spain, 10 years ago. And very early on, Daniel Kinnan came on board. Initially, he was announced as general manager, but it quickly became clear that he was one of the co-owners. And uh, under Kinnan's leadership, if you want to call it, uh, it, it, it expanded very rapidly, particularly in recent years. Now, they have said there was a management buyout in 2017, but it's become pretty clear that he still had a close role with a lot of the boxers were still closely involved with the company. And why is it said that it is ceasing operations, that it is closing down? Well, it all goes back to the press conference in Dublin last week with the sanctions that have been imposed on companies related to Daniel Kennehan and the reward that's been put out for Daniel Kennehan, his father and his brother Christopher that uh, this is the first move, and I think there will be more to come. Like uh, Bob Yalen, the CEO of MTK, resigned yesterday, and that was a sign things weren't right. And then then this, uh, it was announced today that we'll be folding at the end of the month. And it's a, a huge deal in boxing, because it's a company that's in 15 different countries in 25 different cities. And Daniel Kinnahan has said for the last number of years that he has severed ties with the company and yet obviously advertisers, those who promote boxing, didn't feel comfortable with his association with MTK. 
Yeah, well, that, that according to their own statement, it was say promoters told them they would no longer deal with them. And I know there was a lot of nervousness within TV companies would deal with them as well. You know, Bob Arum last week, the CEO of Top Rank, who would be one of the most prominent people in boxing in the world, he said that uh, Danny Kinnan has always been involved with MTK. And there's been a lot of cross wires over this because MTK have been emphatic at different occasions saying that he's no longer involved, but then admitted just weeks later that he advised a lot of their fighters. And MTK Global, as you say, manages a long list of you know, well-known boxers, including Tyson Fury. And he himself was coming under real pressure, wasn't he, in the last week to distance himself from Daniel Kinahan? Yeah, but, but particularly yesterday, where he did a series of, of interviews ahead of his fight on Saturday night against Dillian White. And he got quite annoyed, particularly in an interview with Sky Sports. And he said at the end he would never do an interview with Sky again. And it's the first time he's really been pressed in his association with uh, Daniel Kinnan. And he makes it clear that he, he cut his ties a couple of years ago with him. But he was photographed and videoed uh, with, with Kinnan as recently as two months ago in Dubai. So it's legitimate to ask these questions. Uh, just moving on to one of the other sports stories today, we've heard that Wimbledon has banned Russian and Belarusian players from its tournament this summer. What has it said? Well, uh, the, 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 they said they won't be allowed to co uh, compete because of the invasion of Ukraine. And this is a very controversial move. Like the most prominent players involved are the men's number two, uh, Daniel Med Medvedev of Russia, and the world number four uh, women's player, Irina Sabalenka of Belarus. But uh, it's been, there's been protests from the men's body, the ATP, and the women's body, the WTA, because it does set a very dangerous precedent. Because Russia's action isn't the only aggressive action in the world. You know, the, it hasn't been the only declaration of war. And our, our sporting uh, competitions now are going to ban everybody that's involved from a country who's, um, who's involved in, in a war, who's been an aggressor in a war. That would set a huge precedent. A story, I think, uh, Kieran, that might uh, run and run. Okay, Kieran Cunningham, thank you for taking the time to uh, speak to us this evening. No problem. Kieran Cunningham there. Now, Aoife, I want to go back to you about the teacher conferences, uh, it being Easter. Of course, they're all on at the moment. Uh, we were talking about the cost of living crisis. They've been talking about it too, in particular, I suppose, relating it to the impact it's having on pay mm -hmm. and these pay talks. So there was some sort of threat of strike action. That's been shelved at the moment. I think it might be a bit of sabre rattling, yeah, was it? Yeah, yeah. There was a bit of sabre rattling in the media this week, but the ASTI Teachers Union, they've asked for pay increases of between 6 and 8% to compensate you know, for the cost of inflation. They've also talked about things like, you know, the class sizes we've talked about for years, how we need to reduce the number of the pupil to teacher ratio. The other issue we've heard uh, in from these conferences this week is that young teachers and um, more and more people graduating and becoming teachers can't afford to buy a house. Um, I know years ago, everyone used to think having, being a teacher was a very middle class job and you'd be able to buy a house. That's not the case anymore. So there was some saber rattling at the start. They said, you know, they would talk about ballot uh, ballot measures. There was some talk of that. That doesn't seem to be the case now. Norma Foley has been at all the conferences, and ESTI uh, yeah, said certainly they wouldn't rule out ballots, but it's not happened yet. Um, but this is an issue we're going to see across the sector. You know, it's yeah, everyone is feeling the pinch now. And me and Amber just talking about this before we come on. It is the issue of you know, teachers are pinned to their collar. So are Garda, so are nurses, so are carers. 
where does it end then you know it's a cost of love and crisis across the board yeah so Anne Roberts um, we're hearing there you know calls for a pay increase of anywhere between six and eight percent to match inflation is that realistic I think Norma handled it really well yesterday where she said her colleague Michael McGrath our Minister McGrath is in conversations with all the unions at this Hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little so naturally when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you that's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade moment in time but as I said to Aoife before I come in here like um, as a minister for disabilities when I'm talk constantly talking to parents and carers they're always saying like nobody has them in the conversation they don't have a union that represents them or can demand ministers in in front of them so I think we have to look at this really this cost of in cost of living uh, and supporting everybody in the round and leaving nobody behind. So 68% does that mean that's off the table then? That's I, not realistic. I think that's for Minister McGrath to discuss with their, their, their unions. All right. Uh, my thanks to uh, Aoife Moore. The rest of my panel uh, will be staying with us. And after the break, KS comes down the tracks for Ulster Bank and KBC customers. You're very welcome back. Well, more than a million KBC and Ulster Bank customers face chaos as their two institutions begin their withdrawal from the Irish market. So what are customers to expect over the coming months? Well, my panel of Anne Rabbit, Valerie Cox and Kieran Cuddy are still with us. And I'd also like to welcome Dara Cassidy of Bonkers.ie. And Dara, I'm going to start with you and we'll look at Ulster Bank. I mean, the services, I suppose, that they have been offering their customers have really been scaled back in the last couple of months. Yeah, no, absolutely, for existing customers. Customers. Some of the services have been scaled back. Uh, anyone trying to take out new business, a new mortgage, a new loan, that's been shut off. The bank is pretty much in a wind-down mode at the moment. And even over the past two weeks, they've even now begun writing out to people, giving them their six months notice to close their accounts. That's not going to happen all at once, so people don't necessarily need to panic just yet. But I mean, the message I would certainly get across is the bank is absolutely now in wind-down mode. And what does closing down your account actually involve? 
Well, I suppose the first thing is that people need to find out who they're actually going to move their account to. And I think that's the biggest issue. Uh, there's around eight providers, so there is still a little bit of choice out there. But the type of account that would appeal to someone, um, you know, is different depending on the person. I'm always asked, you know, what's the best account? Do you want a branch network? Do you want an overdraft? Uh, do you use cash a lot? That will all depend on, um, you know, the type of account that that's right for you will depend on the answers to those questions. So really the first thing that people need to do is find out who they want to move to. Ulster Bank, though, does have a process in place uh, and they are saying that when they write to people, they will help people somewhat in the, the move over. Um, but and what does that help involve? Process. Does that mean, you know, transferring your money, transferring your direct debits, that type of thing? Yeah, and the biggest issue is with direct debits. So there is something that's called a switching code in place at the moment. And if you use the switching code, your bank is supposed to help you transfer over the direct debits. Is that happening? Um, the thing is, even in the good times, it rarely worked perfectly because there's often a direct debit that doesn't get transferred over or the originator, so maybe you know, Electric Ireland or Sky who's accepting the direct debit, uh, something happens there. But it definitely remains to be seen how that code would even hold up if 100,000 people all tried to switch at the same time. And of course, with direct debits, it's not just the bank that we need to worry about. So all the focus has been on Ulster Bank and KBC. We need to make sure that you know Air, Vodafone, three, all of those people are able to accept those direct debit requests as well. And then of course you need to update your employer because no one can do that for you. You need to update social welfare. So there's a lot of things that you'll need to do probably by yourself as well. Uh, Valerie, when I'm listening to that list of all the things you have to do and all the companies you have to um, contact, I am even an Ulster Bank customer, a KBC customer, and I can feel the panic. Um, it is, it's an anxious time for people. It is, and it's particularly bad for older people, vulnerable people, rural people. Um, people are very loyal to their bank. And of course, the banks have encouraged this over the years. I mean, I remember a mart down in County Mayo, and every week when it was on, one of the bank officials used to go and sit there just to see where people were putting the money they were getting for their cattle, and whether they were his customers, or he needed to chase these customers, or he needed to say to his customers you have a second account you know so it's very very serious and you've got to think about you know people are being asked to go online not everybody goes online not everybody has broadband I live in County Wicklow and I'm in a black area for broadband I mean I keep getting these happy letters telling me it'll be sometime next year 2023 but who knows you know so what are you doing to people if they can't drive they can't get to the next bank if they can't do that maybe they're going to ask a neighbor or a friend to do it for them and that is putting them at risk also small villages towns it's going to get about that people have got cash on them. And that is an absolute risk for crime, for attacks on older people. I mean, it really is very, very serious. Uh, Kieran, we heard the Financial Services Union you know, say last month, like two banks going out of the market at the same time, one giving 90 days notice, one giving um, six months notice, mm. a million customers affected, that it was reckless, is it? Yeah, like, arguably it's reckless. Look, the seventh circle of hell for me is admin. I absolutely hate it. I was in a cold sweat listening to Darren talking about that. Having said all that, we'll have all the usual stories about people kind of struggling and customer service being terrible and needing to use the neighbours and all that. 
everyone will muddle through. But like in a couple of months' time, we'll be on the other side of it, and everyone will have a new bank, uh, a new account, and a new bank. They will. It's no a fact. They're waiting three months for an appointment. Uh, they will. Yeah. They will, though. But what's the so alternative? That's not going to happen. What's the alternative? They just, they, they, they just, they, they have no money, and they're just left to wither and die. Like I mean, we yeah. will, we will absolutely get through to the other side of it. The bigger well, issue here is the fact that there are two banks leaving the market. Mm. Like in the context of a booming economy, which is what we have, in the context of a country that is fertile ground for foreign direct investment. Foreign banks don't want to come and trade here. Like that is the bigger question. Yeah. Uh, sorry, just, message. I think before we move on to the, to the next message, I think there, there's a few points here. I think the central bank have a role to play here to, to ensure that there's an orderly process, that no customer falls off a cliff edge, and that if it takes longer than the six months or the 90 days, it should happen to be longer than the, the six months or the 90 days. The other piece on it is, is that if I was working in the Ulster Bank or the KPC, I cannot finish working there, um, I cannot serve my notice, or I lose out of my redundancy. Perhaps they should start letting some of their staff go to actually work in the, the, the more the, the two major banks that might be taking on some of those accounts. I worked in banking for 25 years, so I can talk with a little bit of authority on this. Switching is an absolute nightmare. In a good day, it didn't work, and we had loads of staff. Now we're gone all technological, there's nobody to meet the customers coming in. So are so they ready? Are the banks ready to close? Are they prepared to move these one million customers across? And are the new banks or the alternatives um, that Dara talked about, are they ready? No, they're not. They don't have enough staff to meet the people, to make the appointments, so to actually have the face-to-face, -to, -face, to ensure that the loans transfer successfully. Like when we get to the direct debits, we're down to the small fry piece of it. Mm. But like a lot of the Ulster Bank customers are long-established customers of Ulster Bank. They would have a lot of lending attached to themselves, and there is a lot of credit pieces that has to so go who's, as well. So who's responsible for that then, Anne, if you're saying they're not ready? But they don't have enough staff, because the words I'm hearing back is that when they ring the call centre, and the central bank has called them out on this as well. Uh, where they have, the they calls. can see that they're not ready. Yeah, they've said that the call centres aren't returning the calls. When they go back then to them, they have to go back into the, the, the bank. And when they go in and meet the bank for the first time, it's actually only an appointment. To make an appointment, to have a proper <laughs> meeting with a QFA, to actually go around the process of opening your account. Right, so, uh, so, so now we definitely, I think, have outlined all of the problems. Uh, although I think, Kieran, you don't see them well, as any just, major I don't, issues. I don't think we're going to be looking back <laughs> in years to come talking about the great Ulster Bank KBC scandal. Like, yeah, you know what I mean? It's, just gonna be, it's gonna be a pain in the back. Yeah, I mean, we're talking a lot about online and how customers are going to have to use online. Last year, Age Action carried out a survey, right, which showed that 65% of over 65s experienced digital exclusion. So what would you say to them? Well, I would say to those, I, I, I don't think everybody, once they pass the age of 65, is useless. I actually think oh, that they on. are well, we well capable. We didn't use the word useless. I think Kill they are on. well capable Kill of going into a bank and opening account. Loads of them, they're brilliant. They could do it. There is not? an issue the okay, well, this suggestion that like, over, like once they're over the age of 65, we that, it's going, to be, that it's going to be, I know, but I'm using the word. And I, I the, once Shame people, you. why? Because I didn't say 100%. I said, this is a survey by Age Action, which looks after older people very well. 65% hmm. of over 65 okay. experience digital exclusion. Uh, sorry, I just want to get, to, I'm sorry, Kieran, just want to let back in here. There is an issue though as well around how the online services will cope. I mean, I would like to reiterate to people that it is relatively quick and easy to open up a new account online, not necessarily to switch. However, things can go wrong. If you don't have an EU passport, sometimes you need to make a, an appointment. If it's a joint account, I've heard stories of people trying to open up an account with AIB, or not AIB, permanent TSB online, and then the 
pick that you're supposed to take not being accepted and then the whole process failing. So whilst the IT infrastructure does look as if it's there, it needs to be tested. And I'm just worried how if, you know, 10,000 to 20,000 people all decide to use the AIB or the permanent TSB app within a week or so, if it's going to hold up. Uh, what about the alternatives, the, the Revoluts? Are they, you know, chasing these customers? Yeah, they are. I mean, Revoluts now a bank, N26 is a bank. I think they provide an absolutely amazing service. I could talk all day about them. There are a few issues that people need to remember. The first is sometimes around customer service. If something does go wrong, there isn't a face that you can necessarily see. There isn't a phone number that you can ring. Um, they're obviously not for people who use cash um, because they have quite, I suppose, strict limits on the amount of cash that you can take out before you're charged. And there is the issue around IBAN discrimination, which really, really frustrates me because it's, I think, an impediment to competition. Lots of people, including government agencies, refuse to accept a Revolut or a um, German or an N26 IBAN. And that, I think, would kind of put me off recommending them fully. All right, we're going to have to leave it uh, there. But my thanks uh, to Minister Rabbit. The rest of the panel will be staying with us. And after the break, time to cancel your Netflix subscription. Well, join us in a couple of minutes. We'll be discussing it. You're very welcome back. Well, Netflix shares took a tumble today as the streaming giant loses subscribers for the first time in a decade. Is this the start of the demise of the platform? Well, my panel are still uh, with us and we're also joined by tech editor with the Irish Independent, uh, Adrian Weckler. Uh, Adrian, you're very welcome to um, the programme. OK, put this into context for us. How many subscribers does Netflix have and how many have they lost? 220 million now. They've lost 200,000, which is the first time that we've seen its figures go into reverse. So that has shocked the market. But to put it in context, it's 0.1%. So probably close to a billion people or maybe 15% of the planet's population still watch Netflix. But it wiped 35% yeah. of the value of the company. $55 billion was wiped off. So it did shock those who invest in, in Netflix. A lot of the reason that you would invest in Netflix is the idea that it will keep growing at 20 million a year. During the pandemic, we saw it at 20, 30 million subscribers. What investors are now seeing is that with the likes of Apple uh, TV+, Plus with Amazon Prime, with Disney Plus. There are strong competitors now. Uh, there's a cost of living crisis where maybe we have too many subscriptions and we're starting to, to, to prune those subscriptions. And investors are starting to think maybe Netflix won't grow exponentially forever. Just to be clear though, they've lost 200,000 subscribers, but they have pulled out of Russia where they had 700,000 customers. I mean, they have made that point. That's right. That's the irony. If they hadn't pulled out of Russia, they would still actually be up on the quarter. Now, analysts do expect them, and the company itself has guided, that they will lose another 2 million uh, subscribers sometime this year. So their big battle is how to get more money from the people who are using Netflix at the moment. Reed Hastings, the CEO, said that an estimated 100 million households currently use Netflix accounts from somebody else. So that's your ex-girlfriend's brother who lives down the country who is still using your Netflix account. And you don't mind because you pay for the 20 euro version and that gives you four uh, concurrent streams and that gives you 4K and it's never cut you off. 
Well, Netflix right now has signaled that it is going to start cracking down on shared passwords. So this time next year, if we're talking about this, it's very likely that your in-laws, maybe your neighbour, maybe your elderly parents who you've been sharing your Netflix account. Maybe all of the above. Yep, they won't have access to it anymore. Uh, Kieran, the clampdown on the sharing of the Netflix password. I mean, I know you have a Netflix account. Would that put you off paying your subscription? Uh, well, it wouldn't. It might uh, upset some of my family members who are leeching off my <laughs> Netflix account. If they're watching, they know who they are, Kira. Um, no, like, it's funny how, how they will go about it. Like, it's going to cause some problems for them because they've like they've priced in people doing this into the business model to a degree and, and the idea that you know the three kids move out of home and they're still using mum and dad's Netflix account and I'm not sure is it kind of uh, can they take it as read that if they clamp down that the three kids then will all take out their own individual accounts they might not bother and then mum and dad might decide you know we're just going to cancel the subscription if no one is using it so actually they lose some customers that way either so like it's not straightforward and as well limiting by IP address I mean People travel legitimately away from their own home every day for work or for pleasure and should you not be able to access your Netflix account when you're not in your own house anymore? Is there going to be limits on that? There's just there's a whole host of problems. I'm not sure it's a straightforward. One out of ten of the people who are accessing other people's Netflix accounts actually paid for it. That would be $2 billion a year more to Netflix. Now, its current commissioning budget is $16 billion. It's one of the biggest of any studio worldwide. If they could add another one or two billion dollars to that, they can commission more shows, more movies, that will probably bring more people in. Uh, Valerie, is there too much choice out there? Is that part of the problem uh, now? Because initially it was just Netflix, and yeah. now we have Now TV, Apple, Amazon, Amazon Prime, the list goes on and on. It's a crazy choice, Kira. And in fact, I read something the other day where someone had actually worked out that of all the stuff on offer, if you wanted to sit down and watch it, it would take you 126 years. But I think there's also an element maybe of having reached saturation point with their customers because during the pandemic they signed up, I don't know the figures, but they signed up so many people during the pandemic. And yes, people are cutting back now and maybe that's one of the things that are going to go. But I think they have swept up so many people in the last few years that maybe there's not that many potential customers anymore anyway. Uh, one of the real difficulties, I suppose, Dara, at the moment is the cost of living, isn't it? Everybody yeah. is looking at every direct debit, at every outgoing and trying to figure out, is it worth it, is it not? What can go? What can we live without? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, inflation is at an over 20-year high of 6.7%. Uh, energy prices are at absolutely astronomical levels. The price of gas and electricity has gone up by about €1,500 combined over the past 18 months. So people are kind of struggling more than they have. So they're probably looking at their outgoings to see what can go. And maybe previously people would have been happy to pay for maybe two or three tr streaming services. Now they're looking at it and they're thinking, well, hang on, maybe one has to go. And remember, Netflix is 20 99 for the premium account, whereas Disney Plus, for example, is still only 8 99 And it introduced two price increases in Ireland in the space for around 18 months. And I think maybe that was just a straw that broke the camel's back or that will break the camel's back for some people. It also introduced a price increase in the US that didn't go down too well. Now they still say they lost you know, uh, customers, but it was still a revenue positive. But uh, maybe they've just been a little bit too greedy over the past year or so with their price increases. If you have kids, you don't have a choice. If you have kids under the age of eight, you cannot not have Disney Plus. <laughs> yeah. No, 
I'd like to point out I am surviving with kids under the age of eight without Disney Plus. How am I doing it? As well is that like Disney, what they have over Netflix is they own the IP on things like Lucasfilm and Marvel and all the Disney movies going down through the years. Like they can churn out sequels and prequels to beat the band and they will make money hand over fist. And Netflix has had some great hits recently, but they're starting a legacy from nowhere. And they've been taking that off Netflix for maybe four or five years ago when Netflix was the only show in town that had its own content, but it also had Disney content. It had you know HBO content because they didn't have their own streaming services. That's now all been taken back by Disney. To be fair, most of the water cooler shows that we talk about are still Netflix shows. Things like Bridgerton, shows like that. Isn't one of the uh, difficulties, though, is that the other options perhaps offer news, offer live sports, and that's something like Netflix doesn't offer that. You know, that they have tried to increase their offering in a way that Netflix hasn't. So Amazon and Apple have started to watch, uh, have started to offer live sport. Any Premier League football fan will know that at Christmas time in the UK, uh, Amazon uh, shows something like 20 matches. Uh, Apple has just started to show baseball. They clearly have a roadmap in sport. Netflix has resisted that. None of them say that they want to do hard news. That's very, very difficult, costs an awful lot of money. Um, and the, arguably, the current networks who do it, do it very, very well. So I wouldn't expect to see them get into that uh, anytime soon. And also, if there's one thing we shouldn't take from this, it's that somehow streaming has peaked and that we're all going back to linear TV. This is a great channel. We're, we're watching linear TV right now. But generally speaking, the long-term trend is to streaming. Uh, Kieran, is the long-term trend to to screening bye-bye terrestrial TV and and radio, perhaps? Oh, absolutely not. There's always going to Glad be an appetite for live television <laughs> and live radio here. You know it. No, but just like Adrian's right that like the zeitgeisty shows have been on Netflix, but. It, it, there is a way around the continual subscription to it. That, like, they're, they're not every week that you're getting a Bridgerton. You can leave your subscription for six months, sign up for one month, just pay the one month fee, and binge. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, that is the way we not watch it. as well, because Bridgerton, for example, was on terrestrial TV for the first series, and then the new series now, they've just put it on Netflix. Mm. So, you know, you can't watch it as easily. And I think a lot of people watching live TV, obviously not this sort of program included um, they're, re- they're recording them and then just watching them at their leisure or binging at and so perhaps leisure. they don't need this 12 month subscription to enjoy that exactly uh, what about the competition from things like TikTok uh, Adrian what impact is that having and is that you know moving towards the younger more lucrative uh, market TikTok is the most underrated and understated competition to Netflix and all TV channels so it's not like Facebook on Instagram. I realize anyone watching this show right now who's over the age of 35 won't really appreciate what I'm about to say, but I guarantee you. That's this entire panel, I think. I guarantee you, if you have teenage kids or if you you have uh, relatives under the age of 25, that a regular activity for them, instead of coming in and watching the TV at nighttime, is to go to their room and watch two or three hours nonstop of TikTok. And what is it that they're watching for the audience this evening who who perhaps don't understand it They're watching videos. They're watching stream after stream after stream of videos. There are thousands, there are millions of videos there. There are bona fide TikTok stars who are celebrities and personalities in their own right. They give uh, advice. There are news shows. TikTok is a major 
comp uh, competition to, to these uh, platforms. Are they as popular in Ireland as they are in, in other countries, TikTok streaming and all these streaming services? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like Netflix has over 600,000 subscribers in Ireland. It's the biggest, most popular uh, TV subscription service. I think we get that, as Adrian was kind of alluding to at the start, I wouldn't be writing off Netflix or any of the subscription services. But no, certainly now TV, um, particularly um, uh, you know, Netflix, Amazon, they all do extremely well in Ireland. Um, what else um, can these streaming services try to keep viewers, Adrian? Well, Netflix has said that uh, one thing it's considering to try and add uh, subscribers or keep, uh, keep some is to offer a lower paid tier. So instead of paying 20 euro or 15 euro or 12 euro, maybe you'll pay 5 euro and you'll start to see ads. Which was something that they were against yeah. for a long time, yeah. wasn't it? Now, I think I heard a groan from yes, the side. Yes, you definitely did, ads. from Valerie. And I pay, for example, 11 euro a month for YouTube premium solely, so I won't see ads. Um, however, there is a section of the market, you'll see it, for example, with Spotify, Spotify premium versus Spotify free, who will put up with ads um, if they get something for cheaper and that's something we might see. Yeah, I think giving people the choice is a good idea and I think it'd be you know, revenue positive for them as well even though most people here probably don't want to, <laughs> don't want to be after well, watching That's them. why you record your television programs. Exactly. So you don't have to watch can the I just, ads. Can I just say this show is supported by ads? Yes, sorry. <laughs> yeah. And that's just how I was going to finish the programme. I think we will leave it there, Adrian and the rest of my panel. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Our programme is available on a podcast on all major platforms. Our next news is on Ireland AM live TV tomorrow morning from 7 but from all the late team here good night and do take care This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.